Welcome to Our Plant Stories, where we dig into the stories that plants tell us about people and places. And this week, the camellia definitely ticks all those boxes, and across several hundred years. To give you an idea of cost, a camellia purchased in 1830 was the cost of a maid's salary for six months. This is why you always find them in the UK in historic gardens or houses. We'll come back to camellias in the UK. If as you listen today, you realise you too have a plant story that you would like me to look into, you can email me, sally at ourplantstories.com. It's almost a year to the day when I first heard Marion Whitehead on the Roots and All podcast. She was telling Sarah Wilson that she was interested in people's personal stories behind plants. And my ears pricked up. There will be plenty of personal stories in the episode. But to begin this story, I would like Marion, who is the supervisor of Ornamental Gardens and Nursery at the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens in Mount Tomar, to take us to Australia and a garden she is about to plant. So I am currently sitting on the red basalt soil of the slope of the north face of Mount Tomar Botanic Gardens and of Mount Tomar itself because we are a botanic gardens that sits on a mountain. All of our gardens are beautiful sloping sides of the mountain. So the future site for our camellia garden is no different uh, and I am sitting where the new path that will take visitors through our beautiful collection of camellias will be. Um, I'm sitting on leaf litter of Eucalyptus fastigata, which is one of the overstory trees here. And then I'm sitting beneath a Quercus roba, which is starting to drop its leaves because we're coming into the start of autumn. It's a beautiful day here. The understory that I'm sitting in is pretty sparse so it's a pretty open woodland and as the clouds pass in front of the sun it's creating beautiful dappled light on the ground because it's still early in the day the lyrebirds are still running around frantically um, which is one of the um, most conspicuous birds that we have on site and at this time of day they're either chasing each other or mimicking all the other birds that exist in the area. Um, There's also a few magpies watching me do this and I just heard one of them make their early morning call. Um, I think you can also hear a truck going by. We actually exist on the side of a quite a big arterial road that connects Sydney with the west of New South Wales. But yeah, that's our camellia garden site. A really beautiful blank canvas ready for an exciting new development. We're going to take one step back because this camellia story starts with an anniversary. Yes, it does. It starts with their 200th anniversary, which is one of the longest anniversaries you can have in a country like Australia that's only over 200 years old. So it's the 200th anniversary of the first planting of a camellia at the Botanic Gardens in Sydney. And how does that 200-year anniversary connect to you right now in the Blue Mountains, in the Botanical Gardens? We are the cool climate, uh, higher altitude annex of the Royal Botanic Gardens of Sydney. 
and we've been here for 35 years. And so we grow the cooler climate, uh, higher altitude collections that belong to the botanic gardens. So this was a totally non-native species to Australia. You don't have camellias. No, we have no camellias in Australia. The closest country that has camellias endemic to it is Vietnam. So that's quite a way away from Australia. And do we know anything about why it came? I would say probably two things. Because tea is such a vibrant commodity, um, especially amongst sort of settler colonies, I would say that that was a big part of it. If it was camellia sinensis being planted at the gardens, that was most likely for tea production. But more of the camellia cultivars would definitely have been planted and were planted as a reminder of home for those who'd come out from the UK and were used to having them in cottage gardens and they do surprisingly well in an Australian climate. So they were definitely brought out for nostalgic reasons, I think. And so you are about to make, how do you say, make a camellia bed, make a camellia garden? What's the technical term? (laughs) It's It's a hard one. There's so many facets to putting a new garden in, building a new garden. I tend to just refer to the next step in the process, which for us, which will happen in the next couple of weeks, is breaking ground on our camellia garden. But that's sort of at the very end of a maybe decades-long process of collecting all the plants which go into it, clearing the space into which it will be planted. And then, of course, the landscaping, designing, planning out irrigation, removing trees that are in the way part of the garden. But I think the succinct answer to that is that we are building a new camellia garden. You said a decade of collecting the camellias. Tell me a little bit about that. So um, Mount Tomar, we have had a small nursery on site since the inception of the garden in 1987 or a little bit before when the garden was being established. And in that time, some of the plants that have been building up in that nursery are camellias. And then when I started working in the nursery myself um, as the nursery manager, I would I actually joined a group called Camellia Arc that did a lot of camellia propagation and swapping of interesting and unusual camellias. And myself and Mitchell, one of the other horticulturalists here, began amassing a collection of camellias within the nursery. We'd also had a very generous bequest from a member of the public who had left money to Mount Tomar Botanic Gardens specifically to build a camellia garden. What will it mean to you? when you put those first camellias that you've been tending, looking after for many, many years into the ground? I think it will be, I feel like I will cry even saying it. Um, I am so lucky to work in a job where I get so emotionally attached to the things I do. And I feel like the things that we do here, particularly with the camellias, are, um, are really meaningful things. So it will definitely feel emotional and overwhelmingly exciting to be planting the first camellias but it'll also feel like a bit of a relief. I feel like a lot of the work we do with collectors, with camellia societies, with Camellia Arc in Australia, there is a lot of call for those who love camellias to preserve a lot of camellias that within Australia are disappearing and so this is a really fantastic step towards 
putting together a collection of the best camellias, the most special camellias, having them all in one place where the public can appreciate and enjoy them as well and safeguard them for another 200 years. Wow, that's an amazing achievement. It really is, but it also, it just feels so, I feel so peaceful at the thought of doing something to help preserve these really special garden plants. I mean, one of the the reasons why we've recently been so frantically collecting camellias is that within Australia, we don't get petal blight, which is a disease that affects camellias. And so our quarantine laws have changed in the last few years, meaning that we can't bring in any new camellia plants. We can bring in the family theaceae, but we can't bring in any new camellias. So all of the camellias that we have in Australia now is all that we will ever have. And then the fact that those who are camellia collectors, that generation are sort of becoming older and older and there are yes, less younger camellia collectors means that it's really vital now to work with those collectors and collect their rarest and best camellias to be looked after in perpetuity at the Botanic Gardens because we won't move into an apartment. We will just have garden beds where we will have horticulturists looking after these collections for the public in perpetuity. So it's something that I feel like if we don't do it, it might not happen. There must be some wonderful stories from the collectors. There are some amazing stories from the collectors, some that you sort of almost wouldn't believe. One one collector was not even very interested in camellias and she met a camellia collector at a local market and he unfortunately was really unwell and he needed to pass along his collection to someone and they struck up a friendship and sort of an apprenticeship I guess in camellias and he managed to hand over his whole vast one of the best collections in the whole country I would say probably one of the best collections potentially in the world Um, within a year he managed to hand over his whole collection to her and she since then has dedicated her life to these camellias she's built on her property I think three large structures to house them and then has been working with camellia groups in Australia to identify them and then share the material of them with the rest of the camellia community so that we can perpetuate the rarest ones. There are other collectors that I've met that have dedicated maybe like 50 years to building their camellia collections and on relatively small blocks of land have entire woodlands with huge six metre overstories of camellia reticulatas, hundreds of different cultivars of camellias just in their backyard that they've tended to alongside regular jobs. So it's definitely something that people are incredibly passionate about camellias. It must be wonderful as a botanist, as a gardener, they don't often get the chance to like literally start something new like this. That's kind of a rare opportunity, I imagine. It really is. I didn't imagine that I would be able to do this sort of work when I started in this job. But I guess that is one of the best things about working at the Botanic Gardens, that this is our core business, to elevate these plants that you so love, 
to the public for people to see them and try and grab a little bit of that love that you have for them and share it with everyone. Which brings us neatly to the connections between Camellia Collections in Australia and the UK. Geraldine King, who you heard at the very top of the programme, is the garden manager at RHS Rosemore in Devon. But previously, for eight years, she cared for the Camellia Collection at Chiswick House. This was a conversation between two horticulturalists with a passion for a plant and a dedication to making sure future generations can enjoy it. We're building a quite big landscape on the side of our mountain, on the north face of the mountain, to house all the ones that will be suitable at our climate. So a lot of that will be reticulatas that will let grow to sort of their full height. And then we have a bit of a collection of Higos going and then just a range of the ones that are really beautiful and dwindling in the country and as many species ones as will suit at Mount Tomar. So we can sort of tell the story of camellias across cultures and across time. That's fantastic. And I mean, it's interesting you talk about reticulatus because in the Chiswick collection, there was only one reticulata and that was Captain Ross. And that yes. was the first ever Camellia reticulata, Captain Rawls. And it was the first reticulata to be introduced into Europe in about 1823. Now, there's an interesting story about this. So, Sir Joseph Paxton, who went on to really make Chatsworth quite famous as landmark and build some amazing glass houses, he was at Chiswick. So, he was an apprentice at Chiswick. And Paxton takes the Captain Rawls from the glass house at Chiswick and brings it to Chatsworth. And if you go to Chatsworth House, the two original Captain Rawls are there, but they both died. But they mm. still kept them there to say, look, these were the first ever reticulata to come in. But there still was a Captain Rawls at Chiswick. And so we then sent them. Um, now, interestingly, it's incredibly hard to propagate. And you actually do, you do it not by cutting. You um, have to graft them. Well, you have to graft yeah. them. And it's really hard work. And I think one of the interesting stories, that, particularly about propagating, we'll go on to this in a minute because I've got another fantastic story about propagation. But basically, the plant goes back to, so we still plant Chiswick, they send theirs to Chatsworth. And then, believe it or not, Chiswick dies. And this oh. is just prior to me going to Chiswick. So my predecessor, the wonderful Fiona Crumley, who's, who's now not with us, but really brilliant at bringing that collection back to life at Chiswick, said to me, why don't we go up to Chatsworth? They say that they've got a Captain Rawls for us. So we drove up in her car to Chatsworth and uh, we go in there and there's this massive camellia. And they said, this is for you. This is your Captain Rawls. And then he says to both of us, will you get that in the car? And we both went, we'll get it in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, we drove from Chatsworth to London. I did not see Fiona. There were branches everywhere. She couldn't <laughs> see the gears. <laughs> like, if you'd seen, I took a brilliant picture. But the other funny part of that story is um, Stephen, who's the head gardener up there, let us out the gate and then closed the gate on us. We had to carry this plant back to the cart. And I said, Fiona, you know, it really does look like we are stealing this plant. And then lo and behold, the Marquis comes by watching us to carry this plant across the car park. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, how are we going to explain this? So wonderful story. And now Chiswick has Captain Broad back in its collection. 
Oh, so, wow. just lovely. <laughs> but that ended so well. <laughs> yeah, it just looked like I was stealing it back. Um, have you got a favourite? Like a favourite camellia? Mm. <laughs> I do. Um, it, it depends, though, on what time of the year it is and, and what mood I'm in. But I think generally um, my favourite is camellia and plexicolis, which is yes. just like a straight species. There was one um, that we collected a form of it in northern New South Wales and it was a pendulous version of an amplexicolis and yeah. the margin of the petals is white and it's just uh, – it's the foliage on it is so, like, big and deeply veined and shiny and the flowers are just so fleshy and it's just the most beautiful thing. When it has – when it's in bud, it looks like bubble gum. It's just oh, wow. a very, very – pleasing it's just the most beautiful camellia that I know do you have a favorite I do but just going back I love the older varieties because they're really gregarish they're loud they're in your face they are mad I have one and I'm going to describe it like a raspberry ripple ice cream and it's called japonica gray's invincible I've only ever seen one and bearing in mind I've been out to Brittany I've been out to Italy to Lake Maguri I've been to several gardens in the UK and I've not come across this one, but it was interesting because it was found in a garden and I can't remember where in the UK, but basically Mr. Gray was a linen draper and his gardener propagated this plant and they called it Gray's Invincible. But the leaves are quite small, but the flowers are like a raspberry ripple and then a light undertone of soft pink. And then when they open up, you've got this pink with these lovely, lovely markings, in, 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 you know, almost in a circle going around of a deep red. And it really is fantastic. But again, a mistake I made, I did an interview for the Garden magazine. And they said to me, what's your, be careful of this, actually. And they said to me, what's your favourite camellia? So I said, Grey's Invincible. And then can you believe that everybody was phoning up Chiswick to purchase a Grey's Invincible? So the next time, because we have a flower show and we propagate our camellias. <laughs> so the next time that someone... I was doing an interview before we were doing our show. I would go, I'd ring up my propagator, I'd get her on the radio and I'd say, what have we got the most of? She would say to me, <laughs> you've got the most of Rupa And then I would say, my favourite plant is Rupa And if you followed me, you'd know I'd be changing the plant every year. <laughs> so and effectively, it's about conservation, actually, because what we're trying to do is save these old varieties. Um, yeah. But. Again, the interesting thing about propagation, and, and I want to ask you this question in a minute, is I was taught by a gentleman called John Price, who owned a nursery down in um, Cornwall. And he said, the, the problem is, Gerald, he said, old people don't breed. And he's got a point. You're trying to get a cutting out of a plant that is 200 years old. And he said, so you have got to expect some failure. So interestingly, certain varieties did really, really well. And certain varieties were just, oh, painful. And you might get one or two. And so when you, you go around plant hunting, are you taking cuttings off of those yes. plants? How's it working? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely like a big attrition rate of the things. Because often you're also quite far away from home when you're taking cuttings or you're doing a big trip. Sometimes our trips are like four or five days long. So you're often... 10 hours drive away from home, um, visiting collectors 
a long way away. And I laugh at you with the Captain Raws in the car because we had a trip where the car from the floor to the roof was full of Ziploc bags, just full of the entire, I had to have my bag on my lap for 14 hours on the drive home because the whole back of just a station wagon was full of just bits of plants just shoved in everywhere because often people who are wanting, they have the same desire as us to see these camellias and these plants be perpetuated. And often we're collecting things from collectors who are quite old or they don't have other people to give their collections to. So they're putting all this trust in us to take as much as we can and propagate as much as we can and take it into our collection and looked after it forever. So you end up with thousands of cuttings. So yes, we do take cuttings. We strike everything we can from cutting, but things like reticulatas and things like some of the Uh, more subtropical species camellias we do graft so then we have to do the collecting in that really small window in winter when you can then graft and have them sort of percolating away and then you wait for months to find out if you were successful and every time you think oh 100 percent and then every day 10 times a day you're checking and checking and then you lose so many and it's so humbling. What I love about this, and I love this conversation because your passion for camellias is there from both of you, which is wonderful. And But you're delving into a time when camellias were precious, valuable, people were excited by them, they were collecting them. And then in this current era, I don't get the feeling that camellias have as much love as they once did. Our gardens are shrinking, we perhaps have less space do you, do you feel that's true or do you think their time will come again and we will, because when you describe them, it's exciting, it's stunning, you want to see those plants? Well, in the UK, they became very fashionable between 1850 and 1900 and then they went out of fashion and then, you know, the William Clear hybrids came in, the Japonicas because they were stout mixed with the Saluensis because it produced profusion of flowers and thus came a massive flurry of these hybrids which made them popular again. But you're quite right, they have gone out of fashion in the UK because they've got large flowers. But I think, again, and again, you've touched on it, um, Marion, the species chameleons and the, the Italians were saying this, are becoming incredibly popular because they're small flowered, they're less messy, and some of them have scents. But the other one is, is the Higos because they are in your face beautiful. So it's, I think what we're saying is the trend has changed. I mean, I don't know what, what's it like the other side of the world. Younger generations are not interested in camellias, partly because there's a housing crisis here and the chances of owning a house and having a backyard are really slim for my generation. So people don't have backyards that they're gardening in. Um, And then it seems like when they are gardening in backyards, it's edible things. So it's vegetable gardens rather than a camellia. So they're sort of relegated to a grandmother's plant camellias here. But that's something that I feel can be turned around because camellias have so much to offer in terms of a plant. Here, they're incredibly low maintenance. They're really, really easy to grow. You have one in your yard and then you can never do anything to it again and it will just flower forever and look amazing. I can't understand why they're not more popular. <laughs> oh, I, I will never understand, but I just think it feels like 
a weight of responsibility that it's up to me and the other members of Camellia Arc to make them popular again. So I'm doing my best. Well, I have to say, responsibility-wise, believe me, when you're looking after a collection that's 200 years old and you're like, don't die on my watch. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) If you head to the website, ourplantstories.com, you can see some of the camellias that Marion and Geraldine have talked about. Oh, and a great picture of sharing a car with a large camellia on the drive back to London. There's also a bonus clip of the precarious things they have both done to take cuttings of or just identify rare plants. We always leave this podcast learning how to grow the plant. And I really hope that Marion and Geraldine's passion will have rubbed off on some of us. Do let me know if you decide to plant one so I can let them know. Can I grow them in a pot or do I have to grow them in the ground? So in the UK, you can grow them in pots because we're quite mild. And in fact, they do do really well in a pot. We are moving towards, believe it or not, peat-free compost rapidly here. So in fact, the kind of peat-free alternatives are things with good wood mixes in them. And they have survived rather well in that. So a mix of multipurpose with wood chip and bark and, you know, much more woody textured material will suffice for them. But equally, they grow very well in the ground, but they do go very nicely in a pot. And then basically, you can leave them in the pot for two or three years, take them out. And we do something called root pruning. And uh, so basically, you take a pen knife and you slit them vertically at one centimetre all the way round, tease the little roots out. And that kind of gives the upper part of the plant a bit of a reaction into producing more flowers, then put it back into a bigger pot and put it in. And that will stop it becoming locked up where, you know, the whole, all of the roots are bound. Same in the Southern Hemisphere? Same goes here. We have quite a big collection in our nursery at the moment in pots and a lot of them have been in there for quite a while waiting for this garden to be built for them to go in. But they definitely much prefer to be in the ground. You see them thrive as soon as they go in. So I think definitely if they're in a pot here, it's just a matter of making sure that you're feeding them enough, giving them enough water and potting them on at regular intervals so they don't become root bound and claustrophobic in their pots. So I've got my camellia. Does it want full sun? Does it want shade? Or does this completely depend on which camellia I've picked? Uh, Okay, so in like the European climate, you ideally want to give it semi-shade. So it's quite happily underplanting away from the roots of large trees, but quite happily grow on that. Northern wall's good. I wouldn't put it on a southern, a south-facing or east, personally. So go, you know, or west, rather. But they'll quite happily grow. I mean, don't get me wrong, actually, in some of the larger gardens, they are growing out in full sun, but you'll find them might go a little bit chloratic. If they do do that, you just need to feed them with an iron feed. Same goes in southern hemisphere. So generally, they can handle a lot of morning sun. And then just not that sort of baking afternoon sun. So most of the ones that we have at the gardens will go under an established canopy in our new garden. But then we have planted out sasanqua hedges in the last couple of years that are in the full sun. They got a little bit sunburnt when they went out, but now they're doing pretty well. They're very, very hardy, so they can cop a lot of punishment. Any tips for getting your camellia to flower profusely? (laughs) sometimes it's in the camellia that you choose so the 
cultivar or the species of it. Our sasanquas that are flowering now because it's late autumn here are just absolutely prolific flowers. So it's often in the the cultivar or the species. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Marion. I, I think one of the tips we tend to give people here is everybody goes away in holiday in August here. Uh, and if you've got Japonicus and Reticulatus, well, that's when they're setting their buds. So you kind of need to give them water then. And they don't. And then they go, my plant is flowering. And you're like, well, because you neglected it when it was setting its buds. So the important thing it, it, here, we tend to say to people, right, you know, I think what's really important is pruning. If I've heard so many people go, well, I pruned it at Christmas. Well, of course, <laughs> you're going to have no buds on it. <laughs> Cut them off. Because <laughs> you cut all the things off. So I think there are two key elements. You know, one is watering at the right time. And the second one is pruning. And the secret to pruning a camellia is after it has flowered. Whether it's a sasanqua, chaponica, whatever. As soon as it's finished in flowering, that's when to do the, the business. <laughs> Literally, they are. The, honestly, I actually, it does make me laugh when people say I've murdered my camellia. I'm like, well, how? They are not that hard. You know, they're a right tough little plant. You know, they really will take a lot of things that are thrown at them. That's why we've still got them 200 years later, you know, thriving. Our Plant Stories is presented and produced by me, Sally Flatman. If I ever get out to Australia, Marion, I am definitely, I'll come and help you plant. Please do. 